You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care physician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm here today with Dr. Paul Offit to talk about the meningitis B vaccine. Dr. Offit is the Director of Vaccine Education Center at CHOP and an attending physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases. So thank you so much for joining us today. I know your time is precious. My pleasure. Thank you. So a new AAP policy statement makes recommendations on the use of two recently licensed meningococcal B vaccines, both uh, MenB FHBP or Trumenba and MenB 4C or Bexera. These vaccines are approved for individuals 10 to 25 years of age who are at increased risk for serogroup B meningococcal disease. The Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or ACIP, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC, have also made similar recommendations to the AAP. So my first question for you is why was serogroup B not included in the initial meningococcal vaccine? Um, the meningococcal B vaccine has been difficult to make. If you look at the other vaccine, the, the either Menactra or Menveo, the ones that include serogroups A, C, W, and Y, mm-hmm. those vaccine are, vaccines are made by taking the polysaccharide or complex sugar that, that encapsulates those bacteria mm-hmm. and then linking those, purifying them, and then linking them to a harmless protein. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't do that with MenB because the MenB polysaccharide mimics a neural cell adhesion molecule, or said another way, it mimics a host protein. And therefore, the concern is that if you gave that, that you could induce an autoimmune response. So mm. that's limited the making of a MenB vaccine. Therefore, because you can't use the polysaccharide, you have to use proteins on the surface of the bacteria, the so-called outer membrane proteins. Mm-hmm. So now, now you're not looking at serogroup, which is what the ACWY is. You're looking at serotype, and there mm-hmm. are many different serotypes. So it's been hard to figure out how to pick serve proteins that would represent a wide variety of serotypes. Um, the, uh, as you said before, the Trumenba vaccine contains mm-hmm. two factor H binding proteins. The uh, Bexero vaccine contains one factor H binding protein, a heparin binding antigen, a Neisseria meningitis adhesion molecule, and then an outer membrane vesicle, which includes a porin protein. So mm-hmm. it's four different proteins, hence the 4C. It doesn't look like there's a dramatic difference in the efficacy or safety of those two vaccines. And so the ACIP therefore didn't distinguish between them. Great, thank you. It sounds like it's complicated, so I understand now why it's taken a little bit longer to get that one. Clinically though, is there any difference between meningitis B uh, disease versus other serogroups? No, uh, the, the MenB, um, like the others, can cause rapid, overwhelming infection. I think that's what makes meningococcal disease so awful. I, unlike other gram-negatives, this particular gram-negative bacteria can make endotoxin at mm-hmm. far greater quantities and greater rate than the other um, uh, uh, gram-negative bacteria. And so a child can be fine one minute and dead six hours later. And, you know, the mm-hmm. CDC states, and I think they're saying it jokingly, but I think it's true, that they could probably um, determine the epidemiology of meningococcal disease by reading local newspapers. Hmm. I mean, these, this disease invariably evokes panic and hence the desire to prevent it. Right. 
So given how severe the disease can be, why are the CDC and the ACIP not yet recommending it as a required uh, routine adolescent immunization? Right, so, so it's licensed by the Food and Drug Administration for the 10 to 25 year old. If you look at the number of 10 to 25 year olds who will get MEN-B disease in the United States this year, it's probably about 55 to 60 total. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think that's number one. It's not a lot of people. Right. Um, number two is that um, it's still unclear what the duration of immunity is. Per, you know, the initial data looks like immunity may fade three to five years later, which would require booster dosing, and already you have a two to three dose vaccine, depending on which product you choose. Mm -hmm. And three is strain protection. There was just recently a paper by Basta and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine on July 21st of this year that tried to look at that Princeton outbreak, which involved mm -hmm. several uh, students at Princeton, to see whether or not the uh, sera that had been generated by immunizing all those students, and it was almost 10,000 of them, mm -hmm. with Bexero, to see whether or not that neutralized the reference strains for, for men B, and it did. Mm -hmm. But the neutralization against the actual circulating strain, instead of being 85 to 100%, which, which it was for the reference strains, was only about 67%. Mm -hmm. So then strain coverage has also come in. So I think it's three things. It's epidemiology, duration of immunity, and strain coverage. So as, as a consequence, it didn't get a full recommendation. It got a permissive recommendation, which is to say you can use it if you want, which I think for, for pediatricians or family practitioners has been confusing because mm -hmm. you know you can use it. It's licensed. The question is, should you use it? And I think that the um, ACIP punted, basically. Mm. You, you brought up an interesting <clears throat> point. So for now, the kids who are getting the MEN-B vaccine, if they're at college and there is an outbreak, do they get antibiotic prophylaxis still because they're not fully covered? Or... Do they, what should they do if they're exposed well, to someone? If, I think they should get, if, if there's an outbreak mm -hmm. on a college campus, then they should get MEN-B vaccine. I mean, hopefully they've gotten the vaccine when they came in. I, I mean, right. if, if my personal recommendation, if you look at the 55 cases in that 10 to 25 year age group, about two thirds of them will be in the greater than 16 year olds. So, mm -hmm. so I think it makes sense, frankly, to have this as a recommendation for the 16 to 18 year old. Mm -hmm. I mean, my children will get this vaccine. My mm -hmm. daughter's a senior in college and mm -hmm. I think it's, um, it's a value. The, and the other, by giving a permissive recommendation also, Vaccine for Children's program covers it, and then in theory, the, the insurance company should cover it. So that sort of lifted the, uh, at least the financial concerns about the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Seems like some practitioners are, because the, the recommendation was a little bit broad, they're a little confused about whether or not they should give it when they're 16 and they're, and they're giving Minactra, for example, or if they should wait until right before a student's going off to college, since we don't know how long the immunity lasts. Do you have a preference or a recommendation about sort of where in that window is the optimal time to try to give the vaccine? Right. So if you look at the epidemiology of meninge ACWI, which is mm -hmm. primarily a, a C and, and Y, and to a much lesser extent W in the United States, um, it's, it does look like the college student is at greater risk because they are in dorms, because they um, engage in, in activities that involve contact more, say, than someone who wouldn't go to college who's not going to be in a barracks-like uh, situation. Right. Actually, men be the data are it doesn't look like you're at greater risk for going to college or not going to college. The risk seems to be the same. So uh, I think anybody who really is, is of that age should, should get the vaccine. And so um, in terms of your duration of immunity question, I guess I would give it later rather than sooner, assuming, mm -hmm. because that will take you longer longer than through that period of, of uh, risk in later adolescence, young adulthood. But I think, I do think it's a value and should be given. Great. And you mentioned that the dosing differs a little bit between the Trumenba and the Bexero. Um, at least in the primary care clinics, I think we're, we're giving Bexero. So what's the minimum interval between doses and how many doses are needed? 
Right. So, so Bexera is a two-dose vaccine, um, the, and I think it's zero one is the zero and one month. The, right. the Trumenba is, is originally licensed as a three-dose vaccine. Now it is also licensed as a two-dose vaccine, in which case the, uh, the uh, immunization would be zero and six months. I think, um, so I suspect that in the future both will be considered to be two-dose vaccines. Great. And we don't know yet whether or not a booster would be needed down the road. Don't know. But I would guess, frankly, looking at the duration of immunity data to date, that one would need it. But again, now you're talking about sort of coming to the end of sort of the, the, uh, the highest at-risk period. Highest at-risk, right. So you said that you think MenB vaccine will now be covered by all federal and commercial insurances. Do we know that for sure? Is it? We know that, that when the, the, you get a permissive recommendation, that, mm -hmm. that, that that means that it is covered by VFC and it should be covered by all insurance companies. And when I've been to the ACIP meetings and the people representing insurance companies, private insurance companies mm -hmm. have been there, they have said they will cover it. So Great. in theory, they're going to cover it. As you know all too well, whenever there's a vaccine that's perceived as new or something that parents think is uh, a kind of a new hot topic that they're seeing in the news, there can be some hesitancy to getting vaccines that aren't required by their child's school. So how would you recommend primary care doctors counsel these parents who are hesitant about a quote, new vaccine? Well, it's not that, as is true, frankly, with all vaccines. Once right. they're licensed and recommended, they're not really new. I mean, this, this sure. vaccine has been licensed in many countries before here. It's been tested in, in tens of thousands of people before it ever came into the United States. So there's a tremendous mountain of evidence on which this vaccine stands. We certainly know mm -hmm. that it's safe, as it makes sense. It's just a protein vaccine. Mm -hmm. It's not a live, weakened bacteria. And right. we know that it's, it, it certainly induces the kind of immune response that it will allow it to be effective. I mean, it's hard to do efficacy studies on a disease that only affects a few hundred people in a population of 300 million. So you're really looking at immunological correlates of protection. Certainly this, this vaccine meets the immunological correlates of protection. What I would say to a parent is that it's not a common disease, but you don't know who it's going to affect. You know that this vaccine has a high likelihood of preventing it. And why take a risk that you don't need to take? I think your job as a parent is to put your child in the safest position possible. And this vaccine would provide at least that measure of safety. Great. Are there any side effects from the vaccine that we need to mention? Pain at the site of injection. Great, just like everyone else. <laughs> and this is a little bit off topic, but I can't help making our last word be about the new AAP policies um, in September issue of pediatrics calling for the states to use their public health authority to eliminate non-medical exemptions from immunization requirements for school entry. Currently, Pennsylvania allows religious exemptions. Do you think that's gonna change in light of the new AAP policy statement? I think that the, I can say with absolute certainty that this, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania will never eliminate the religious exemptions oh, of vaccination. No. That's not what we, I wanted to recall, hear. Recall, we live in a state or a commonwealth that has a religious exemption to child abuse and neglect laws. And even with that recent sort of Sandusky pedophile scandal at, at Penn State, where there was really an attempt to overturn those, meaning religious exemptions to child abuse and neglect, we couldn't do that. If you are a member of the Faith Tabernacle Church here, which mm -hmm. is a faith healing church, or a member of the First Century Gospel Church, which is a faith healing church here, um, you can choose not only not to vaccinate your children, you can choose not to give them life-saving medical care. And as long as you claim it is an expression of your religious belief, you're allowed to do that. Such is the nature of Pennsylvania. I, I don't see that changing at all. Well, I love, though, that the AAP finally stood up for children and mm -hmm. said that we should only honor, frankly, medical exemptions because philosophical exemptions don't make sense any more than religious exemptions don't make sense. I mean, your job is to right. care about your children. How is not caring about them a religious act? 
Right. Do you think other states will turn the tide faster than Pennsylvania? I think what you're seeing is you're seeing states eliminate philosophical exemptions. Mm -hmm. California eliminated their philosophical exemption. Vermont recently eliminated their philosophical exemption. But states are low to overturn religious exemptions. It's not very good, mm -hmm. uh, very good practice, frankly, for con for congressmen or state senators or whatever to try and take on religion in their state. It's never a winner. Not in t today's climate. And just resources for the primary care clinician who wants to learn more about meningitis B vaccine or other vaccines, where would you refer them to? Well, so, so the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia has a website where we have a tear sheet on, uh, where it's sort of a Q&A on meningococcal vaccine. The CDC also has an excellent resource, of res excellent resource for this, as is the American Academy of Pediatrics. So there's a lot of resources out there. But our site has a tear sheet that you can download and print out and give to your parents. Great. That's super helpful. Thank you so much for your time and thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. Thank you.